So last week, we just started a new series. We are starting into a series that's really a survey of the books, the biblical books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. We're taking a look at the Old Testament law. Now, these books, Exodus through Deuteronomy, these are the books that are often avoided. Okay, when people start reading the Bible, they often start at the beginning. They're at the beginning of Genesis, and they read through Genesis, and it's kind of exciting and interesting, and they get into Exodus, and it's also pretty exciting and interesting until about halfway through Exodus. And then at that point, for many, it starts to become a bit of a slog, and it, it, it feels confusing. It can feel boring. It can feel irrelevant. And sometimes it seems offensive. And so, oftentimes we just set aside this part of the body, or the, the Bible. And, um, and we hide it in a corner and we go to the parts that seem to be a little easier. But we must not do that. Because the Bible, of course, is a, 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 a connected whole. And we can't just take pieces out and set them aside and know it all flows together. And we have to dig in to this part of Scripture. And so that's what we're going to do for the next many months. And as we do, I think we're going to see that this is not boring and irrelevant. There's a lot of beauty, actually, in these books. And we're going to see that more and more. And this is important to go through these books because I think in our world today, in the Christian world and the non-Christian world, there are a lot of questions about this book, these books. In the Christian world, people are asking, how does the Old Testament law relate to my life as a Christian? How does it relate to how we shape and structure the world and institutions in this world? And the non-Christian world is looking at, they're looking at these books and they're criticizing the Bible through these books, taking some of those obscure, perhaps offensive passages and critiquing the Bible. And I think we need to have answers for those. And we're going to try to articulate some answers because there are answers. And we, of course, also need to understand these books in the Bible because it lays such a foundation, such a foundation for the gospel. And it points to Jesus. And we're going to try to understand that as we go along. But right now, we're, we're still in the, the, the part that seems exciting. We're still in, still in early Exodus. This is still the part that they make movies about. <laughs> and we just started last week again. Perry introduced us to Moses. And we're going to continue with the life of Moses. And remember, Moses had been called by God to return to the place of his upbringing, Egypt, and to lead the Hebrew people, the Israelites, out of slavery, out of oppression. Now, Moses had been reluctant to do that. He argued with God a little bit. He didn't think he was fit to lead these people out of Egypt. But God compelled him, made some accommodations. He allowed Moses to take his brother along, Aaron, who was a better speaker than Moses. God... God took the two of them back to Egypt, back to Pharaoh, to confront Pharaoh and ask for the release of the Israelites. And so that's where we're going to pick it up. And we're going to cover Exodus 5 through 11 today, seven chapters. Now, obviously, we're not going to read every word of those seven chapters. I'm going to take a few selected passages out of those, those chapters and then summarize a lot 
and then we'll draw some key ideas out of that, that summary. But let's start in Exodus 5. It's going to be on page 48 if you're using a house Bible. And we'll read a couple verses here and then do some paraphrasing. All right, Exodus 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Okay, so this first question that Pharaoh asks is going to frame the whole seven chapters here. Pharaoh begins saying, who is the Lord? I don't know him. And that's the question really we're asking, and the question that these chapters are going to answer. Who is the Lord? So Moses and Aaron make this request. Pharaoh answers like he does, mockingly, dismissively. And then he responds by increasing the load on the Hebrew slaves. He says, you must do more with less. And he he oppresses them further. And of course, they they respond to him and they say, we can't do this. We're unable to. You you must give us more. And he, he dials it up a little bit more. He says, no, you're lazy. You're idle. Here's what you must do. And so, so their, their, their oppression grows and it, and it builds. And, and, um, and if we skip down to verse 20, we can, we can see the, the Hebrew foreman coming out from their meeting with Pharaoh after he rejected them. And this is what they say to Moses. Verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Can you imagine this moment for for Moses? Remember, he was reluctant. He didn't want to come back here. He didn't think he could do it. He thought he was inadequate to lead all of these people. But he comes back and he obeys and he confronts Pharaoh and he goes in to meet him and he challenges him and he makes the request and things get worse. And they get worse. And then the people that he came to lead out of bondage turn on him. And begin to criticize him. And have you ever been in this kind of place where, where you felt like you were step, taking a step of obedience? You were responding to God and things just got worse. And, and people started to oppose. This is so often the case. We take that initial step of obedience and it gets really, really hard. And it seems very unfair. But so often... This is part of what God's doing and part of his intention. And he's going to walk Moses and walk us through that and show how he fills in and how he redeems. So God comes to him. God responds to this this complaint from Moses. And he responds with with reassurance and promise. And much of chapter 6 is about that reassurance. So God speaks to Moses. There's this this, this long speech to Moses, and he reassures him and renews his promises. Now, we're not going to read that right now, although we are going to come back to it because this is a really important passage. But just understand that in chapter 6 and into, into chapter 7, God is reassuring Moses and renewing his promises. 
But let's go ahead to chapter 7, and we are going to go down to verse 10 in chapter 7. This is where Moses and Aaron go back to Pharaoh. Verse 10, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. So God had equipped Moses and Aaron with the ability to perform these signs to show that he was with them. And one of these signs was the ability to throw down the staff and have it turn into a snake. And so Aaron does that. But verse 11, then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord has said. Now, this can be a little stumbling to us. Okay, God gives Moses and Aaron the ability to perform these signs as, as a, a sign that God was with them, and they do it, but then the magicians in Egypt apparently do the same thing. And we ask, what is going on here? What's this all about? Well, some might say this was just sleight of hand. These magicians were master illusionists, and perhaps they were. They were really good at, at tricking. And so they were able to imitate what Aaron had done there. Others might say, no, actually, maybe these magicians really had access to supernatural demonic powers. And that may be very likely as well. You know, it's kind of awkward to talk about, but there is a spiritual world, and the Bible makes that very clear. And there is evil in that spiritual world. And sometimes there is a power behind that, that evil. We go to the New Testament and we see that. We see the, the man possessed by a demon who could break chains. And so we see that there are powers like that working, and perhaps these magicians had access to those powers. Regardless, though, the point here is that God's power was more. And so although they were able to work this seeming wonder, Aaron's staff, his serpent, swallowed up theirs. And it was an example of God maybe recognizing a certain power, but then showing that he had the greater power. Let's keep going. After this, Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he, he still refuses. And so... We're going to launch into these plagues. These may be very familiar. There are 10 plagues that God is going to bring about on Egypt. And so the first plague is this, the, the, the water in the Nile River being turned to blood. And so we're going to skip down to verse 20 and read about that. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile." Seven full days passed after, after the Lord had struck the Nile. So here's the first sign, the first wonder, the first plague. They turn the, the water in the Nile River to blood. But the magicians do the same, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he refuses to let them go. 
So here's the, here's the first plague. And then there are another nine that unfold. Now, I'm not going to read each one of those. I'm just going to summarize them. I'm going to list them here and then share some of the, the details and the patterns that are involved in these ten plagues. And so here's, here's what we see. We just read that the Nile was turned to blood. After this, there's the second plague, plague of frogs. There were frogs everywhere, everywhere in the land of Egypt. After that, there were gnats. The dust was turned into gnats, and gnats were everywhere, followed by flies. And then the livestock were afflicted. And so the livestock in the fields, at least most of the livestock, began to die. After that, boils were brought. Boils that, that were on the skin of, of both people and animals. After that, there was a violent hailstorm. Then locusts were brought in and devoured the crops. And there was darkness. In midday, darkness was brought upon the land. And finally, there was the death of the firstborn in each family. And that one we're going to cover a little bit more next week as we get into the Passover. But these are the ten plagues. And let me just describe how each one tends to take place. There's really a typical pattern for each of these ten. First, Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh with the request to let the people go into the wilderness. Then Pharaoh refuses. So a plague is initiated. After feeling the weight of this plague, Pharaoh pleads for relief and promises to release the Israelites, although typically with conditions. He'll say, okay, you can go, but not too far. Or you can go, but only your men, not your women and your children. Okay, your women and children can go, but not your animals. And so he's trying to keep some control. He's trying to bargain. But he does promise relief or to release the Israelites. So Moses prays to God, and relief is given. But after that, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and then the next plague is initiated. This happens basically in the same way ten times. So that's what's happening here. Now, let's try to pull out some details. Now, there are a lot of details. Actually, when you get into this, this is, this is fascinating. There is so much in here that you might not see on the surface. I'm going to give you just a few observations, pull out a few of those details that I think will be helpful for where we're going to go. So a few observations. Number one, the plagues were intense and increased in intensity. We don't want to just gloss over this. These were serious. They were really serious. These would have been overwhelming to go through. Most of us have not experienced anything close to this. We've experienced little slivers of something like this. You know, we had a wasp problem a few years ago. Right now, we're experiencing a moth issue. A few years ago, I hesitate to tell you this. Something happened in the church here. I hesitate to tell you because I want you to return to the church. But many years ago, we've, we've taken care of it. Since then, we had a, a bit of a bat problem. So there were, there were bats in the church, and they were living somewhere up in the attic, and occasionally one would get out and fly around the gym or something like that. But one particular day, I was here working. I think it was on a Saturday. There weren't many people in the building. I was, I was way upstairs in my office on the third floor, and we had a custodian working here. Her, her name was Mary, and she was great. And um, I was working up in, in my office, and I hear Mary come tearing up the stairs. And she's yelling. She's yelling for me. And she comes up to my office and starts to drag me down stairs, not sure really what was happening, 
But eventually I understood what what had happened. And and Mary was in the kitchen back here, and she was washing up some dishes in the deep sinks. And so there are two deep sinks side by side. She's on the right side, and she's scrubbing a spoon or something like that. And she looks over, and there's a bat sticking out of the drain on the left side. (laughs) It's just sticking its face out of the drain. And so justifiably, she did tear out of the kitchen and came running up. Um, I don't know why she got me, but (laughs) she came up. And so we went down, and sure enough, the bat was still there. We ended up plopping a bucket on top of it and calling animal control, and they came and they got the bat. But Mary was experiencing that where she was just doing dishes, and bats started crawling out of the pipes. But still, that was just a little bit of what they were experiencing here in, in Egypt. And, and it was overwhelming. They had frogs coming out of the pipes. They were everywhere. They were covering the land. And there were the gnats. And they started out as irritable, but they progressed and they became destructive. They went from irritation to destruction to, to death. I mean, think of the hailstorm. Here in Egypt. We've been in hailstorms before, all of us have. I remember one really bad when I was driving home from here, and it, the, the, the sky just opened, and hail came crashing down, and I thought my windshield was going to break, um, and I pulled underneath a, a, a tree and just tried to wait it out, just hoping my car would stay intact. And probably a lot of you have experienced something like this, but this was a thousand times worth, worse, and the hail was coming down and destroying and and some ran for cover and they they took cover and they waited out the storm but when they came out the bodies were strewn about bodies of animals and bodies of people and throughout this time of the plagues and it probably happened over many months actually throughout this time there was just the stench of death constantly it was absolutely overwhelming these were intense but they grew in intensity. Second observation, this is kind of interesting, the plagues can be grouped into three cycles. You may have noticed this before, but many commentators have, have, have noted how there seems to be three cycles of three plagues that have similar patterns in each cycle before preparing the way for that tenth and final plague. Let me just illustrate that really quickly. So in each of these cycles, There are three plagues, and and the first one in each cycle, what happens is uh, Moses meets Pharaoh in the morning somewhere. So we just read about Pharaoh was going out to the Nile River to uh, um, uh, do something, and Moses met him there. He met him as he was coming out. And then Moses warns him. This is in the morning. It said each first plague in the cycle, it's in the morning. He warns Pharaoh. As Pharaoh comes out. The second plague of each cycle, Moses actually goes in. That's what it says. He goes in to see Pharaoh. And then he warns him again. The third plague of each cycle, there's no warning. It just happens. And this happens three times. And with each cycle, there's an increase in intensity. And I share this just to show some of the structure and some of the intentionality in these plagues. Third observation, the magicians were unable to keep up after the second plague. So we read about that, that they could turn the, the water to blood in some way. Well, they, they could, and they could make the staff 
turn in, their staffs turn into snakes as well. They could even somehow bring about frogs, the second plague. But by the third plague, they could not anymore. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Okay, the magicians recognized something right here. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And even later on, the sixth plague says the magicians could not stand before Moses. And so God is progressively showing his dominance. And these magicians had some sort of power, but by the second plague, they, they couldn't keep up. Number four, God made a clear distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians after the third plague. So after that first cycle, there's another distinction made. Before, it seemed that um, these plagues affected everybody, including the Israelites. And that first cycle was, again, probably more, um, they, 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 it was more irritation than destruction. Still really irritating, very overwhelming. But everybody seemed to be experiencing those but after plague three, God makes this clear distinction. He says, this will not happen any longer in the land of Goshen where my people are, are living. And so from then on, there's this distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And then finally, Moses progressively grows in boldness and is the main speaker and director by the sixth plague. And so remember, he was very reluctant. He was fearful. God accommodated for him by having Aaron speak to the people. And Aaron also had the staff and he would kind of initiate things with the, the plagues. Well, actually, around the sixth plague, Moses is the one that is taking over. And he is speaking directly to Pharaoh. He's the one with the staff. He's the one that is, is initiating each of these, these plagues. And, and he's speaking strongly to Pharaoh as well. At one point, he even turns his back on Pharaoh and just leaves. And we see this progression in Moses that God is equipping him. And he went from a very fearful man. He's pretty bold by the end. Now, I share each of these observations. There would, again, be many more to share. But I'm, I, I want to try to begin to see some of the structure, some of the attention in these plagues. And we're going to see more of that as we go on this morning. But I think at, at first glance, we can see, we, we, we can think of them as sort of haphazard, kind of random. But there's a lot underneath here. And God is doing something here. Okay, he, is, he is building an intensity. He is being very careful as he ratchets up that intensity and he's revealing something more and more little by little as the plagues go on. Okay, so now that we have an overview of these plagues, I would like to draw out and talk about two key ideas. These are ideas that stand out to us, I believe, as we read these chapters. The first one is a hard one to understand. The second one is a really meaningful one. And so here are those two key ideas that I want to talk about this morning. Number one, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Okay, that's said throughout. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And then number two, the revelation of God's nature. And we'll see how that was the intention behind all of these plagues. So let's start with that first one, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Now, early on in this narrative, at the beginning of chapter 7, this is what God says to Moses. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. So God makes this promise, I'm going to harden his heart. And he's not going to listen. He's going to refuse to hear you. 
And we read these things, and it is a bit of a stumbling block. And we ask ourselves, is that fair? Is that fair that God moved in this way and that he seems to harden a heart like this? Well, this is, this is a challenge. This can be confusing. And, and this is a big topic that we could spend a lot of time on. I'm not going to do it justice today, but I do want to share a few thoughts and really four truths or observations um, that, that may help us with this. So, these observations, what can we know? What can we know here? What can we know about God? What can we know about the world? The first thing that we can know, that we can be sure of, God is in complete control. God is in complete control. He has authority over everything. And nothing happens, nothing in this world happens apart from the authorization of God. God authorizes everything that happens in this world. We can be certain of that. And God has a certain prerogative. Okay, he has the prerogative to move in hearts as he desires, as he sees fit. He has the, the, the justifiable rights to move how he desires to move. And... <clears throat> We should note that throughout the Bible, when people, have a, when people take issue with this, they are, are generally corrected. Okay, most famously probably in Romans 9, where, where Paul says, does the clay have right, a right to challenge the potter? No, the, the potter shaped things. He's in charge. He is in control. He is the sovereign one. And we should... We should understand this, and we should be careful not to soften or diminish God's control, his sovereignty. Second truth, though, God is not the author of evil. Okay, so God is not the one who initiates evil. This is also a common theme throughout the Bible. Just like throughout the Bible we see God is in absolute control, we also understand that God is perfectly pure. He's holy. He doesn't bring about evil. That's not what he, he does. And sometimes there are secondary agents underneath his authority that carry those out. We might think of the story of Job, where Satan came before God, and, and Satan was the one that, that initiated all the pain and the evil in Job's life. Although, again, it was under the authority of God, he had to get permission from God, and yet there was a, a secondary agent underneath that really initiated the evil. So God does not, God, God does not do evil. Okay, we can be sure of that as well. Okay, so these are two truths that the Bible proclaims throughout its pages. Given those two, two, two truths, there's probably a third conclusion. As we consider our infinite God, we must become comfortable with mystery. Okay, of course there is mystery. Of course there is tension. Of course there is, a, there is seeming paradox in all of this. And of course we have to acknowledge um, our inadequacy in understanding these things. We don't want to soften those first two truths at all. Okay, we can't do that. And it leads us to acknowledge our finiteness 
and our inability to understand some of these things. You know, going back to the story of Job, when Job was questioning and challenging God, wondering why all these things were happening to him, God responded to him, but he didn't respond with an explanation. He responded by telling Job, or by questioning Job's position to challenge him. Job, I don't, I don't think you're in the right place to be able to raise these issues here. You just don't see fully. You weren't there when I made everything. And so we must be comfortable with some amount of mystery. Nevertheless, I think there are some unique features of Pharaoh's situation. So the fourth truth or the fourth observation In the particular case of Pharaoh, we see an interesting progression in his hardening. We see an interesting progression here. And I'm going to explain that. So, as we move along, we see see the, the responsibility for his hardening being attributed differently as we move along. Okay, It's like we're singing Margaritaville. You know that song. To each verse, somebody's different to blame. Okay, the responsibility is attributed differently as we move along in this narrative. And so let me show this. Um, I read the, the verse a, 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 a few minutes ago at the beginning of chapter 7 where God promises, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Well, after that, it's interesting to see how, how it's worded, how this hardening is worded. Early on in the narrative, it's, it's spoken of for you grammar nerds, it's in the passive voice. Okay, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. There's no clear subject who did the hardening. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and that's how it speaks early on, and really even throughout the narrative. As it progresses the wording changes a little bit to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. By the end, it's absolutely God. It's absolutely God. God is in absolute control and he has taken over and it clearly says God is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And really, this is how the narrative progresses. God takes more and more control. Okay, there's this growing crescendo in all of these plagues, and God is taking more control. So early on, he used some more secondary, maybe natural means. You know, a wind blew in the locusts or, or, or something of, of that nature. The dust turned to gnats. Of course, by the 10th plague, it is very much God. God is the one who comes on the scene. And he's moving. And it's clear. It's the same or similar with with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God is absolutely doing it by the end. But I think the wording here is probably intentional and very meaningful for us. And really, it reminds me of Romans 1. Romans 1, verses 21 through 25, says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up 
in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I think Pharaoh's story should at the very least, even though it's, you know, we, we don't, may not understand it perfectly, we're finite, at the very least, it should give us a, a healthy fear of sin. Very healthy fear of sin. Because as we continue to sow persistent seeds of sin, we sow seeds of, of, of hatred, of, of, of lust, of greed, there comes a point, I believe, where God justifiably releases us to that sin. He turns us over to that sin. And it should just give us a, a sober fear, I think, a seriousness about persistent sin. We say, my, my heart could, could grow more and more hardened. And again, God in his graciousness is holding me back from plunging into the sin that I could sin. At some point, he is justified in, in removing that gracious upholding. All right, let's go on to that second key idea, the revelation of God's nature. And I think this is the thrust of these seven chapters. Now, <clears throat> I skipped over chapter six when I was reading earlier. I would like to go back to chapter six. So turn in your Bibles back to chapter six. Remember, Moses was at a low point here. And um, he, had just, um, he had just been challenged by his own people. They were mad at him because things had gotten worse once he came on the scene. So God reassures him. And let's read chapter 6, starting in verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. I say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord." I'm going to put this up on the screen and just highlight the, the recurring phrase. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Okay, God is answering the question that Pharaoh posed at the very beginning. Who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. Well, God came and he said, I am the Lord and I'm going to show it. I'm going to show that I am the Lord. This is what my intention is, that they shall know that I am the Lord. So going back to verse 7. He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He wants to make it clear that he is the Lord to the Israelites, but not only to the Israelites, also to the Egyptians. Chapter 7, verse 5 says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. He says the same thing several times throughout the narrative. 
The Israelites would know, the Egyptians would know, and we start to get a glimpse of God's global purpose that he wants all peoples to know who he is. Not just know that he's there, just not, know, not just know about him, but to know him. That is, that's his goal, that they would know that I am the Lord. Now, what would they know? What specifically is he trying to have them understand? Well, there are a few things. First of all, he is showing his superiority, that he is one God, and he has the dominance over all other gods, all the other gods that the Egyptians were worshiping. And again, we see the intentionality in the narrative here, the intentionality in the plagues. I'm going to put this table up here. It's likely that each of the plagues were brought about targeting a specific deity that was worshipped in Egypt. Egypt, the, the Egyptians, of course, worshipped a lot of deities. And so f- with these ten plagues, God shows his dominance over each one of those gods. So, for example, the first one, the, the turning of the Nile into blood, well, there's Hopi, the god of the Nile. And Pharaoh may have been coming out to worship this god in the beginning. He came out to the Nile River. Maybe he was coming out to worship. God, uh, Moses confronts him there and turns the Nile to blood and proclaims, Jehovah is greater than Hopi. Then there were the frogs, and Hecate was the goddess of fertility, and she had the head of a frog. Well, God brings the frogs on the land, covers the land with frogs, and then removes them just as quickly. And we can go on and on and on. We get down to the darkness. There was the, the god of the sun, Ra or Re, probably the supreme or the most worshipped god in Egypt. Well, God brings darkness upon the land in midday, showing his dominance over Ra. And then, of course, with the death of the firstborn, the final plague shows his dominance over Pharaoh himself, who is also worshipped. God is showing that he is superior. He is one. He is the one with power. And all of these other gods are inadequate. They cannot keep up. The magicians couldn't keep up. None of these gods could keep up either. So God is, that's what God is showing. But in addition to that, he's showing something else. Let's go back to verse 3 of chapter 6. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Well, that's pretty interesting. We can look at the words that are used here. God Almighty, that's El Shaddai. That reflects the mightiness of God and his ability to work miracles, probably. that's, That's the name of God that is used to reflect much of that side of God. And he says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but not as Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is used throughout the book of Genesis, but he's saying he, he didn't yet reveal the fullness of what was meant by that title, but he's going to do it more so now. And Yahweh reflects the imminent, personal, covenant-fulfilling nature of God. Let's look again at chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, where the repeated refrain is, I am the Lord. But after he says, I am the Lord, what does he say? He says, I am the Lord, and I will. And I will. And I will. He is the promise-making, covenant-fulfilling God. I will. 
And so there are these promises kept or made in in verse 6. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. In verse 7, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. In verse 8, I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you. And he is showing himself to be this personal God who's very near and who redeems, who rescues. He's not only the powerful God, although that was very much proclaimed, but he's the intentional God who rescues his people. And not only is is he the redeeming God for his people, he is even for the Egyptians. You know, the initial requests to Pharaoh were not as difficult as the final ones. Initially, Moses just went in and asked, can we go out into the desert for a little while so we can hold a festival to our God? He he was throwing out a little bit of a softball. And so we see that that God is walking things along. Again, he's, he's ratcheting it up slowly by slowly. It is crescendoing, but he's giving opportunities at, at the beginning. And the initial plagues were not as destructive, as I mentioned earlier. They were certainly irritations, but they were not as destructive as the later ones. God gave repeated opportunities, and some, some of the Egyptians even responded to those opportunities. You can read verse, uh, verses 19 through 21 out of chapter 9. God is saying this to, to Pharaoh. He says, Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. He's warning. He's inviting Pharaoh to take cover. Verse 20, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Some of them listened. Okay, God was extending a hand here, even to the Egyptians. He was warning them and saying, he was inviting them, really, to take cover. And in fact, when they finally left Egypt, as recorded in chapter 12, it says a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So many of the Egyptians left with the Israelites. They took that invitation from that redeeming Yahweh God. So in answering Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord? I think we can say a couple things. One, he is all-powerful and holy and will judge and punish with strength and severity. But number two, God's discipline is always measured and intentional. And maybe that's the phrase that I I would want to stick in all of our brains today. Measured and intentional. God's discipline is always measured and intentional, having the purpose of revealing his nature and bringing redemption. Okay, in this measured, intentional way. As I read through and reread through these plagues, what, what began to stand out to me was how well-crafted they were. The detail, the intention, the invitation, how he walked all of the people through these. Very measured, very intentional. And that is our God. Okay, he brings, sometimes he brings about discipline and pain, but again, we can trust it as measured and intentional. And we can trust that as we look ahead, as we start um, getting into the law, and we think these laws are obscure and irrelevant. No, there is a measured intentionality in each of those laws, and we're going to see that. And I'm excited too. But also in our own lives. Each of us, we are experiencing some kind of pain or trial right now. 
And can we believe that all of those trials are under the authority of a sovereign God and they are measured and intentional? And he shapes and he crafts circumstances in order to reveal himself to you in his fullness as Yahweh and to invite you into redemption. Band, you can go ahead and come on back up here. But that's the message of the plagues, I believe. Okay, there's, there is this structure. There is this shape. There's this detail. We see a God who is careful in having all of this play out. And it's the same in our own lives. He is carefully crafting circumstances to draw you to himself.